0: The book of Joel, chapter 2, and in the Church Bibles. That should be on page 761. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people, there like has never been before, nor will be again after them, through the years of old generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them is a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. And like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots. They leap on the tops of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale, like warriors they charge. Like soldiers they scale the wall, they march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths, they do not jostle one another; each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted; they leap upon the city, they run upon the walls; they climb up into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now the Lord declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God." who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never speak again, shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show my wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls.
1: or, well, as we're doing for this series, just one chapter out of each of these minor prophets, just to kind of open the door so that you can explore them more later. Uh, it was a very bleak scripture from Zephaniah last week in Zephaniah chapter 1 about the justice of God that we all deserve. So I'm glad you've come back today. Uh, Thank you. Uh, If you read through the rest of Zephaniah through the week, you'd have hit, though, that second great theme that runs through all of these prophets, the mercy of God, the mercy of God that will save people from that judgment when it comes. Uh, I thought today we might focus more on that second great theme, the mercy of God uh, to save us from justice, by skipping over to another one of these minor prophets, this time Joel, Although uh, you may not have realized that we changed books there because Joel 2 sounds like it could have flowed on pretty well from Zephaniah 1, don't you think? Uh, uh, That's just because they're talking about the same thing. Just just like Zephaniah, Joel is also proclaiming the day of the Lord. The same great theme is here again. It's the same word of God that he spoke through both of those uh, prophets uh, just into different contexts. That they were in, although we don't really know Joel's context. We don't know when this word of the Lord came to Joel because the book doesn't tell us. He is concerned for Judah, so it was probably during the divided kingdom uh, when Israel and Judah had separated. Uh, For all we know, it was at the same time as the same word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, but there's a 400 ish year window of when else it might have been. Uh, The first half of Joel is pretty bleak. Three chapters and the first half of it is pretty, pretty bleak. We dropped into that uh, right in the middle of that bleakness today at the start of our reading in, in Joel's second vision here, as it is in chapter 2 that we've just read through, uh, where in graphic detail Joel uh, runs through uh, all this imagery uh, to convey to us how utterly comprehensive, how, how inescapable the day of God's justice will be. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, verse 1, for the day of the Lord is coming. A terrifying day, verse 2, just like we saw in Zephaniah 1, a day of darkness, gloom, uh, clouds and and blackness. And in Joel's vision, a, a powerful army, so vast this army that it's just like darkness spread over the horizon, the army of the Lord. And it's going to bring complete devastation, verse 3, like fire does. It devour everything in its path and it'll leave everything behind it cooked, turning the Garden of Eden into a desolate wasteland. And and nothing, verse 3, escapes. So, yeah, uh, tremble. It's almost like something out of Lord of the Rings. It's like the, the battle at Helm's Deep or something where a ruthless, unbelievable black army is steadily approaching. And yet, in this case, that army, uh, that's the good army. That's the righteous army of the Lord. And and we are the the defiled ones trying to dig in and defend our idolatrous lives, looking out in terror at at this vast, inescapable army of the Lord as it draws nearer. Uh, Joel goes on with that image in verse 4, like horses they thunder along. They're powerful like chariots, but but chariots that can just leap across mountains and so they come. They're coming and they come and everyone is terrified, verse 6. Every face turns pale. They charge forward straight past all of our defences, up and over the city walls, into everyone's houses through the windows like thieves. Presumably in this metaphor here, to search out and deal with all people on behalf of their commander the Lord God Almighty, verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? It's a rhetorical question. Who can endure it? Nobody is the point Of this vision. That's why every face turns pale, why every person trembles when they behold this coming judgment of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day of justice and it will search out and deal with every sin and with every sinful person. Although it was written over two and a half thousand years ago, uh, Joel has described here something fundamentally and, and unchangingly true of our God. He is perfectly just. Perfectly just. Nothing will be overlooked in his perfect justice. We have lost touch in our fallen world with that kind of pure justice. Under our corrupt uh, sense of justice, crooks get off. Crooks get off. Money buys loopholes. People get bribed. Distorted perceptions Sneak in and issues get clouded and truth gets relative and he said, she said and, and so on and so on. But when God brings pure justice on the day of the Lord, it will be absolutely perfect, righteous justice. It, it, it is beautiful to contemplate that. It's terrifying, but it is beautiful to contemplate such pure justice like that. No hint of sin will escape our God. And therefore, as Joel's vision tells us, no one will escape. That's the terrifying part. This picture Joel gives us of the day of the Lord that's coming pierces us. If God is bringing perfect justice, then then what can you and I do? Because we, my friends, are all sinful. The day of the Lord is great and very awesome, verse 11. Who can endure it? Surely not one of us. And yet, even now. Look at that beautiful change from from the end of that horror in verse 11 to, to the start of verse 12. Who can endure it? Yet, even now, the language suddenly becomes soft and, and very gentle in verse 12. Yet, even now, declares the Lord, return to me. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, he relents over disaster. God does not want this judgment to come upon his people. He has to be perfectly just, but he does not want his people to face his perfect justice and and judgment. He, He is gracious and merciful. It says, he abounds in steadfast love. It says, he relents over disaster. It says, and this is the same thing about God that Jonah preached to us a few weeks ago, if you recall. God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. as Jonah chapter 4 and verse 2. Who knows, back in Joel chapter 2 and verse 14, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering, a drink offering for the Lord your God. Who knows, Joel? Who knows? It's a lovely, teasing little piece of poetry is what it is. Who knows? We know, Joel. We know, we were only just told the answer to that in verse 12. We are called to repent and return to God for the very reason that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and that he relents over the disaster that should come upon us. We know, Joel. His tender poetic question, verse 14, he catches here for us that, that, that second fundamental truth about God running through these prophets. Blow the trumpet in Zion, verse 15, breaks off. Yes, have the people return to the Lord. Call an assembly. Bring them. Gather everyone, the elders, the children, even the babies in arms. Let the ministers of the Lord intercede for the people and let everyone gather to the Lord their God and repent. Why? Because he is gracious, merciful and abounding in steadfast love. He wants to save us from the disaster that we've brought upon ourselves. In verse 18, Joel seems to get another perspective on this truth. He seems to get picked up and and sort of time dropped into the future somewhere to to a point where he can see God's mercy actually unfold uh, after this warning here These time jumps happen in the prophets and these time jumps are tricky when we're trying to read through the Old Testament prophets and I tell you, Joel is full of these little time jumps Uh, but uh, it happens and we need to get used to it. God's prophets just seem to get taken to different vantage points in time from which to see these things that they declare to us. The thing is they package it all up for us though as like a composite image and we've got to try to make sense of it. That's where it gets tricky Joel's overall picture, I think, has got a lot of those time jumps. But I don't think his overall picture is as complicated as it could be. From his new vantage point in verse 18, Joel can look back, past tense, he can look back on what the Lord did next after that warning and the invitation to repentance that God puts to his people in verse 1 through 17. From that future vantage point, Joel can confirm for us what we've just learned, that the Lord is indeed gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. From the future, Joel saw what happened. Verse 18, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. From, from his future vantage point, Joel hears then what God decided about all this from verses 19 through 27. God decided he would restore everything that was undone. He would leave blessings on these people. He'd bring back agricultural productivity to them, and grain and wine and oil. They would be satisfied with what they had and they could again make offerings to the Lord their God. He, he's going to restore everything that they'd lost to the locusts, God decides. All of which, by the way, refers back to... To Joel's first vision running through chapter 1. Uh, you'll read that later when you try to uh, work through the whole book. Maybe there was a literal plague of locusts in, in Joel's day or maybe that was a metaphorical version of this black army of the Lord in chapter 2 or vice versa. I guess it kind of depends on whether Joel had time jumped in chapter 1, if you know what I mean. You'll figure it out. You'll puzzle it all out later as you work through the whole book. But whatever the locusts were or symbolized in chapter 1, the prophecy here celebrates God's mercy. Mercy, no question about it. By chapter 2 and verse 27, God is rejoicing in the spiritual renewal of his people back into relationship with himself. Verse 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. In the middle of that sweet section, Joel's kind of looking back on what God decided, there was actually another little time jump tucked into it, I think. In verse 21 to 23, Joel seems to drop just that little bit further into the future when God had done all these things that he had promised. And and at that time, God could therefore say to the land and to the beasts and to the people, do not fear anymore. It's time to rejoice now. Rejoice in the renewal that God has brought. So from a couple of angles, it seems, in verses 18 through 27, Joel has seen forward to a day of God's mercy. Such restoration, as we read of there, could be fulfilled in a kind of literal sense in the years immediately following a locust plague, you know, as the fields and the forests came back to life in Joel's day. But from our benefit of hindsight, sitting here as we do today, looking back across all of scripture that we have, we can see how this was more clearly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Such a more profound fulfilment in Jesus Christ when the Son of God became flesh. When the Lord, verse 27, truly and literally was in the midst of Israel. Calling people, wasn't he? And, 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 and telling them to come back and return and restore them into relationship with God was what he was doing in the midst of Israel. In verses 28 and 29, Joel seems to time jump again, uh, seeing forward to a day when the Spirit of God was poured out on His people. And those two verses sync up with what happened at Pentecost. We can know that because the Apostle Peter at Pentecost in Acts chapter two told us that that those couple of verses of Joel's vision had come into play. Verses 30 to 31 seem to skip back to the theme of judgment as in verses 10 to 11, they're very similar. Uh, And we can't know when that great day of judgment will be, can we? But, But hold tight, back to the mercy. Verse 32 returns us again to the other great theme, God's mercy. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. A beautiful vision of salvation starts to break through in the second half of Joel chapter 2 and, and we know that that part of the message actually broke into this world near on 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. If you can handle all these time jumps in, Joel, by the way, uh, let me throw in one more. Verses 28 and 29 aren't fixed to that day of Pentecost Verse 29 speaks of those days, those days. And if Joel could have time dropped into today, into this very moment right now, somewhere in the world, maybe even here, Joel might see God pour out his Holy Spirit on yet someone else who would call on the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. Anyway, I hope you enjoy trying to figure out these time jumps. I think we should ask a few questions in our time today while we're here in Joel chapter 2. First of all, how? How can there be this salvation breaking through here? If we pay any attention to the first half of this very chapter, then we've got a discrepancy on our hands. None shall escape, it says at the start of the chapter in verse 3. None shall escape, but by the back end of the chapter, in verse 32, we're reading of those who will escape. So what gives? (laughs) This is the question of our series, really, thinking through these prophets. How can God's justice be perfect? How can it be perfect, all-searching, all-knowing, all-powerful, if some will escape, when the truth is none of us should? How can God be merciful? when he must be just. This is how. This is how he does it. God redirected this justice upon himself. This is why Jesus came into the midst of Israel those 2,000 years ago. This is why Jesus died. This is what the cross is all about. The justice of God needs to be executed. Yet in his great mercy... He carried out our judgment on himself and so he can be and he is both of these things. He is just and merciful. The Son of God bore the wrath of God against our sins so that you and I, the guilty ones in all of this, may go free. That is the gospel for all who will receive it that God abounds in love for us, so much so that he took the punishment we deserve on himself because he is a God of steadfast love and mercy. He did not want our disaster to fall upon us, but he cannot be swayed. He cannot be... uh, overruled in his justice. He cannot be bribed or hoodwinked or distracted or distorted from his justice. He cannot be a judge like we know in this world, according to our watered-down sense of justice. And nor, if we think about it long enough, would we want him to be like that. That would leave no hope whatsoever of a world without sin, a world where everything is good and right. That's what we long for. And it needs a righteous God. So this is good news. Because of who God is, he must be perfectly righteous and just. As I say, it's beautiful to comprehend. He must carry out and will carry out every bit of his justice on every single hint of our sin. And by rights, the Bible is clear. None of us should escape. That's the gospel according to Joel chapter 2 and part 1. But in God's great love, he chose to reconcile people to himself by pouring out his own blood where where ours should be spilled. And So now we are spared the wrath of God that we deserve because he himself has received it on our behalf. That that is the definitive view of God's mercy right there in that gospel truth. And it's the gospel according to Joel chapter 2 and part 2. He just doesn't have all the details that you and I have today. Imagine if Joel had been granted a time jump to where you and I sit right here and right now, where with the full revelation of God in Scripture that we have, Joel could know like you and I can know how. The means by which God reconciled these two huge parts of, of his chapter 2 here. Imagine if Joel could have known how it clicks together the way we do. Imagine if he could have even just heard what what God said through the Apostle Paul just six or so centuries after Joel in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine if Joel had have known that detail of how this holds together. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the mechanism, friends, by which God reconciles these two great things that Joel has just preached to us about our God, that he is perfectly just, but he is perfectly merciful. People in Joel's day didn't know the details of Jesus incarnate and crucified yet. They, they just had to trust God that, that he could somehow be both just and merciful in the judgment when it comes. And and by that trust that they had in God, they were saved by the same faith as we are saved by. But how privileged we are, friends, to to, to know the detail of how these two great things hold together. A second question, how does this promise in Joel 2 and again in Acts 2 this promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord being saved, how does that fit together with Jesus saying, example in Matthew chapter 7 that we looked at about six months ago, that when the day of justice does come, not everyone who calls him Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, there is a difference between calling on the name of the Lord for mercy to save us, and simply using the name of Jesus for our various other ends. Jesus' example in Matthew chapter 7 was actually about people who were wanting to point to their own good works. That's a far cry from, from humbly and penitently calling on Jesus to save them from the due punishment of their sin. It's about as far from it as you can get if you think about it. So the scriptures actually mesh perfectly together. We need to understand our sinful condition and the judgment we deserve, Joel chapter 2, part 1, if we're going to call out to Jesus for mercy, Joel chapter 2, part 2, which is exactly how Jesus calls us to come to him as our Saviour who took the punishment for our sin. My guess is that in Jesus' day, And in Joel's day too, and in our day too, there are many people who do not feel the need for the mercy of God. For they feel no conviction as to their sin and the warranted judgment of God for their sin. But this in Joel chapter 2 is where we actually stand. And so too, Jesus calls us to repent and then to trust in him for his mercy. A third question, which might come more into play later when you read all of Joel, what with all the time jumps that he seems to skip through. When exactly is this other day, this day of the Lord's judgment that these prophets like Joel spoke of? Well, there have been many days of the Lord at different scales, we might think such that we might actually ask, well, when isn't the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is every day. And yet there are two days of the Lord that are so cosmic here that, that we must lock them in. There is a day of the Lord that will bring justice. That's right. We've been thinking about it through this series. That day is still coming, a full and final reckoning of all human sin. Every human being whom God has ever created will be called to account. A day of justice is coming. That's the day Joel speaks of in chapter 2 and part 1, uh, with a little reprise, it seems, in verses 30 and 31. The Bible continues to warn of that day. We all anxiously wait for that day. We cannot know when that day will be, but we can know that it will come for us all. The second day of the Lord that we need to take stock of was the day when, in one beautiful moment, God intervened. Ahead of that day of justice with a day of mercy. Joel has seen forward to that day. Joel may not have had the specifics, but he had the thrust of it. A day of mercy has been granted to us by God. It was a day of Jesus Christ crucified for the sins of all God's people, B.C. or A.D. All who trust in the name of the Lord will be saved. Because if we have repented and put our trust in him, then that justice cannot be charged again now to our account. That would be like double charging by God. That would be unjust of our God to charge us again. No, no. Everything needed to open up God's mercy for us, he has now done on that day of mercy. And so mercy has been granted to everyone who calls on his name. Please hear Joel 2 that day of judgment still comes. And while our minds uh, might race ahead to, to, to the global kind of scale, you know, the apocalyptic end of the world that we tend to always think about, the message of Joel should really be hitting us and piercing us at the individual level because before that day comes, each one of us needs to be restored to God. What do we do now is the question of Joel While we wait for that day, repent, return to him and repent and call on the name of the Lord and you will right now be saved. You'll be safe in the Lord now and when that final day comes. It's written here in God's word. If God in his patience, in his slow anger, in his relenting over disaster, if God intends to hold back that final day for some time yet, then our whole generation might die out before it does come, just like Joel's generation did. And yet we will, every one of us, have to face the God of perfect justice whom Joel has just introduced us to. He will judge the living and the dead on that day. And there will be no one declared innocent in and of their own standing with God. Our only hope is to return to God, throw ourselves upon his mercy. Not when the day arrives, for then it will be too late, but today. Our only hope rests upon the grace of God extended to us in Jesus Christ, who who has opened up for sinners God's rich mercy. Without his cross, there is no other way. Maybe you're not sure about all this gospel stuff. Maybe you're still trying to make sense of of the Bible and the message of the Christian faith. Maybe you do know all these things, and yet you're frightened of what's still to come. Listen in carefully to the God presented in Joel chapter 2. We are right in the first place to be fearful of that day. There is something wrong with us if we're not. That is the point of the warning here. Fear God and his judgment. But in the next breath we're also told to repent of our sin and call on the name of the Lord to be saved by him. From that point, to rejoice in God's mercy. Joel is introducing you to a God who is determined to restore his people, to bring them back into relationship with himself, to dwell with them forever, that they would be his people and that he would be their God. One last question, I'll make it quick. (laughs) Should we then fear God's justice or rejoice in his mercy? I reckon as his people, we can only do both. Repentance, you see, is not just a one-time event. It's a posture. And without the fear of God's justice, we would neither have come into, nor would we maintain that posture. And yet, without that posture of repentance, where is the mercy of God for us to rejoice in? Rather, if you fear God's justice, then you are positioned just right to receive of his mercy. Take hold of both, for they both go together. And if you can take hold of both, then then do you catch the certainty here in Joel of of how this is all going to unfold? It was God who decreed that day of mercy when Christ was crucified for our sin. His mercy is held out to us, not not on the basis of our best efforts or or whatever for, for, for being good in this life or anything like that. No, no, it's held out to us on the basis of his good name, of his compassion, his abundant and steadfast love. He himself has done this. So there will be deliverance on that day. Joel has seen it and we can know that it is true. If you have repented and called on the name of the Lord of mercy, then you are already saved and you will be safe with him on that day of justice when it comes. You are now his by his rich mercy to the day of forever. hope you enjoy the book of Joel. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we always thank you for your scripture to us and the privilege it is that we have to sit here and, and try to wrestle through it together and in our own lives too. Thank you for this day of mercy that Joel begins preaching about at the end of this chapter. Father, it's such good news. It's such vital news. I pray that those who still need to come to you, all uh, well, that you would just draw them into conviction over their sin and grant them repentance and salvation in Jesus Christ whom you have put forward to receive the judgment for our sin, for all who will believe. For all of us who have stepped into that mercy, Father, please lead us deeper now into assurance over this great truth. This great truth of your mercy, it rests on your good name. Have us rejoice in the riches of your mercy every day of our lives as we wait for your glorious return. In Jesus' name we take hold of your mercy for our sure and certain salvation and we thank you and we praise you. Amen.